third year of the coronavirus pandemic, the, world un the word unprecedented is getting a little old. From private space travel to hybrid workspaces, COVID variants to cryptocurrency, in the world ahead 2022, The Economist has brought together experts from around the world to reveal what lies ahead, hopefully precluding us from saying, well, that was unprecedented. Good afternoon and welcome to the program. I'm, thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program today features Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist in conversation with Council President Emeritus Jim Falk. The World Ahead 2022 is the flagship publication of The Economist and is available only to their subscribers. So I recommend that you subscribe to The, uh, the Economist if you are not one yet. I'd like to thank the Santa Fe Council on International Relations for partnering with us on this webinar. Jim is currently their interim director and we always appreciate the ability to work together on our virtual programs. So thank you, Jim. We have only a few weeks left of the year where we're having programming. And also you can see our 2022 announcements on our website. So check that out at dfwworld.org. The council is incredibly grateful to all of its supporters. And today I'd like to thank Haynes and Boone for their program, program sponsorship of this web, webinar. They've been supporters of ours for a very long time. And today Haynes and Boone is being represented by Larry Pascal. Larry is a partner at the law firm and serves as the chair of the America's Practice Group and also co-chair of the International Practice Group. He's also a member of our board of directors and one of my many bosses. Larry, thank you for your generosity. And he's going to introduce our guest speaker and moderator. So Larry, over to you. Gentlemen, thank you again. And to all of our members, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Liz. And indeed, Haynes and Boone is very proud to be a sponsor of today's program. I personally am a long-term subscriber and reader of The Economist. Always look forward to receiving my year-end copy of The Economist World Ahead, and I'm particularly excited to see what predictions they have for 2022. Uh, as Liz mentioned, our guest this morning is Tom Standage, Deputy Editor of The Economist. He has worked with The Economist since 1998, currently leading digital strategy and product development, as well as editing the publication's annual The World Ahead series. He joined The Economist as science correspondent and was subsequently appointed technology editor, business editor, and digital editor. Mr. Stanage is the author of six history books, including the Victorian internet, writing on the wall, and his newest release, A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next, which inc incidentally is currently in stock at our local bookstore, uh, bookstore partner, Interbang Books. Mr. Standage is a graduate of Oxford University where he studied engineering and computing. He has also published in the New York Times, The Guardian, Daily Telegraph, and Wired, taking a particular interest in the internet's cultural and historical significance. Moderating today's conversation is my friend in DFW World Affairs Council President Emeritus, Jim Falk. Jim served as the council president for 20 years until his retirement earlier this year and is now co-host of the McQuestion program on KERA and interim director of the Santa Fe New Mexico Council on International Relations. I know we are in for a fascinating conversation 
please join me in extending a Texas-sized welcome to these distinguished gentlemen to the Dallas-Fort Worth World Affairs Council virtual states. Welcome, Tom and Jim. Hello, everyone. Great to see you. And uh, Liz, it's always fun to see you in my old office. It looks a lot neater than when I was there. So <laughs> congratulations on, on, on that. Tom, there you are. Ready Tom, to go. As, every, as everyone has said, this really is one of the myriad of reasons to be a subscriber to The Economist. I always look forward to it. And I know you have a presentation. But before we get started, what happened to the world in? Because now we have the world ahead. Yes, yeah, so we changed the name this year. And the reason was that the world in name made sense if you had a year on the end of it, like the world in 2021, our annual that came out a year ago. But it didn't make sense if you were um, if you were talking about something without a year in it. And so we want to be able to launch other future gazing, uh, you know, products and supplements and do events and things like that. And uh, we don't want them necessarily to be pegged to a year. We want them to just be about the future of, you know, medicine or, or technology or climate or whatever. Um, so the world ahead is a much more versatile name because we can we can make the annual and call it the world ahead 2022, but then we can do, you know, the world ahead head festival, or we could do the world ahead pharmaceuticals or whatever. Uh, so it's a much more uh, flexible name and it sort of sets us up, you might say for the future. And so uh, that's the, uh, that's the idea. We're, we're, we're forward looking in more ways than one. Are there new sections, any changes in this year's edition to compare? Um, so, to the, so we always have a special section that varies from year to year. And this year it's 22 emerging technologies to watch in 2022 the idea is that you know people have been a bit gloomy about technology lately the past decade or so the two biggest technologies that we've seen emerge in the past decade smartphones and social media we were very optimistic about you know the, the opportunities to drive economic development through smartphones and uh, the opportunities to spread democracy through uh, social media remember that's how everyone felt it was you know in 2010 2011 the the arab spring was going to mean that young out of work uh, Arabs were going to be, you know, rising up against their autocratic governments and using social media to spread freedom and democracy. And unfortunately, that's not how it worked out. And, um, and we now worry that, you know, social media has had a detrimental effect on democracy around the world. So it's all been a bit gloomy. And I think the great thing about 2021 is we've been reminded by the rapid rollout of vaccines that technology can help. So the question is, what are the other technologies that might, you know, make the world better that we should be keeping an eye on, particularly in areas like climate and uh, and medicine in the coming year. So we've got a special section on that. Uh, we also have our continuing collaboration with the super forecasters, Philip Tetlock and his pals at Good Judgment. And we've given them their own page this year, which I think we're going to do more of in the future, um, because these are people who, you know, have a really good track record when it comes to making very specific uh, predictions about aspects of the future. Well, I won't give a spoiler, but in, in reading it, there are some things that make you go, oh my goodness, really, is that what we're facing? But on the brighter side, you see the glass half full and there's a lot of wonderful articles that, that really give you the sense that 22, 23 are gonna be even better. Let's start with your, your presentation. Um, yes, as we were saying, we've changed the name of the annual this year and uh, it's now called The World Ahead rather than The World In. You can see some uh, previous covers there. We've got a new look and um, one of the things that hasn't changed is I still have an editor's letter where I pull together 10 of the trends that I think are, are most important. And what I'm doing here is I'm drawing on all of the content 
uh, in the annual. Um, it's mostly written by my colleagues, other economists, journalists. This is the 36th edition of this annual. Um, but we've always, ever since we've started it, featured guest publications from leading figures in politics, business, science and the arts. So this year, for example, we have guest pieces from Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of South Africa, from Uga Sahin and Özlem Tureki, who are the co-founders of BioNTech, the people who gave us the Pfizer vaccine, and Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist and activist, among many others. So we have lots of predictions and analysis and opinions about what's going to happen next year. And I would encourage you to read the annual in depth. Um, but what I'm going to give you today is my sort of high level summary, uh, essentially a spoken version of the, the 10 themes I've picked out in my editor's letter. Um, before we start, uh, we should look at the things we know are going to happen next year. So this is what we journalists call um, diary stories. And uh, so we know we're going to have a new leader in Germany. In fact, he's, going to, he's just about to take over in the next few days. Uh, we know we're going to have the US midterms. Um, there are various other elections around the world uh, and there are anniversaries. And of course, the big sporting events globally are going to be the Winter Olympics in Beijing and the World Cup in football in Qatar. So let's get into the top 10 themes of the sort of, you know, the bigger trends and themes that join the dots uh, between all the articles that we've got here. I think one big theme that plays out in lots of areas is the rivalry, which is sort of reasserting itself after being eclipsed by the pandemic between America and China in particular, and more broadly between democracy and autocracy. Joe Biden is going to have his summit of democracies next week to try and rally democracies. Um, and essentially what's happening is both countries want to demonstrate that their way of organizing things is superior and can provide social stability and growth and innovation. And um, in fact, Joe Biden in his first press conference as president said that uh, we face a battle between the utility of democracies in the 21st century and autocracies. And we've got to prove that democracy works. Unfortunately, America's rather dysfunctional politics make it a bad advertisement and a bad cheerleader for democracy at the moment. And I think this is the prism through which an awful lot of elections in 2022 are going to be seen, notably in France, Brazil and Hungary. In France, we have a populist TV star um, candidate who is being likened to Donald Trump called Eric Zemmour. Um, and he'll be running, uh, he's one of many candidates running against um, Emmanuel Macron uh, in the uh, first half of next year. Then we've got in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, and uh, he's polling very badly at the moment. And, and he is laying sort of Trump-like foundations to say that the whole of the election is a fraud and that uh, therefore he should stay in office. And then in Hungary, Viktor Orban, who has you know, been the sort of one of the pioneers in maintaining the outward appearance of democracy while actually dismantling it from the inside, faces a newly united opposition for the first time. Um, so, you know, it could be that 2022 sees a sort of high tide of populism um, and that people start to become a bit more optimistic about the health of democracy. But I fear that's just the sort of, you know, the usual liberal wishful thinking from The Economist um, and that uh, things may not be uh, quite as rosy as that. But I think what's really going to bring the contrast between the system of democracy and the system of autocracy into the sharpest relief in 2022 is going to be in the last quarter of the year when we have the midterms in the US and we have the very heavily stage managed Communist Party Congress in China. And you really couldn't imagine two more you know, different ways of, of changing how you, uh, you, you manage the leadership of your, of your country. Joe Biden and the Democrats are expected to do badly and to lose control of the House and probably the Senate too, which is you know, obviously this long, one of the, the uh, longest um, and most enduring patterns in American politics is that whoever holds the White House does badly in the midterms. By contrast, Xi Jinping is going to be confirmed in power for at least another five years. 
and possibly indefinitely. Normally he would be handing over to somebody else at this point, having been president for 10 years, but he's decided not to. And um, this is something that the Chinese government are talking up the value of stability, of having a strong leadership, how great it is that they've been able to control the, um, uh, the pandemic and the way that they have. And in fact, in recent days, because they haven't been invited to this summit of democracies, they've started to argue, Chinese officials have been arguing that actually China is a more, is a superior form of democracy to America's because it delivers growth to its people and it delivers social stability and it says that America's democracy is in a bad way. And another slogan that American uh, that uh, Chinese officials like to use is the East is rising and the West is declining. Um, so you could sort of characterize all of this as a new Cold War, but we think that's not a very helpful way of, of looking at things, given that the Cold War with the Soviet Union um, didn't involve trade between the West and the Soviet Union, uh, whereas obviously this current uh, geopolitical contest with China, we are also very closely economically linked in the West with China. And the, uh, you know, the, the poster child for that is the iPhone uh, designed in California, made in China, using components from, in fact, all across um, Asia. So it is possible for these geopolitical rivals to cooperate in some areas. And of course, there are lots of areas where America and China could usefully cooperate. Areas like trade, dismantling some of those trade barriers put up by Donald Trump. Areas like climate change, where we would love to see, you know, unified action. Um, and also areas like, like uh, cybersecurity and nuclear non-proliferation. However, we expect that in, in 2022, uh, it will be in both countries' short-term political interests not to cooperate on these sorts of things. Joe Biden uh, will not want to, I mean, although it might be quite useful to take down some trade barriers with, with China, uh, one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats agree on is the need to look tough on China and to stand up against China. And uh, any sort of concession like that would uh, you know, allow Republicans to paint him as, as, as caving in to China. And meanwhile, Xi Jinping will be dialing up the nationalist propaganda to cement his own position and distract from any economic weakness that might be coming from China's property sector, which has been looking rather wobbly lately. And the one good news, though, about this sort of need, this desire that the Chinese have to pre preserve stability next year, is that it does at least mean that, uh, you know, we think that means conflict over Taiwan or in the South China Sea is much less likely. Um, stability really is everything for China in 2022. Okay, let's move on to the pandemic. Now, obviously, the emergence of the Omicron variant in the past few days has changed the picture here somewhat since our um, our publication came out at the beginning of November. Um, but the general trajectory is the same, which is that we are moving from having a pandemic to having an endemic disease, one that we live with, uh, one that is you know treatable, uh, that does still cause some deaths, but uh, you know does not disrupt economic activity and society in a big way. And we have lots of existing diseases that are like this and that is the long-term you know outcome of the pandemic that's what's going to happen however omicron may mean that it takes a bit longer to get there than we saw than we expected but um, but if we look at this chart here you can see that the dallas baptist university is a global christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business law medicine education public service and the list goes on dbu is honored to sponsor the global iq podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. The vaccines, and this is combining data from Britain and Israel, two countries that vaccinated early and quickly, you can see that it's done a good job of breaking the link between cases and deaths. 
Um, and so, you know, we have these uh, uh, these vaccines. We have the ability to um, to cope with the virus in ways that we didn't two years ago when the cases were first discovered. And in 2022, vaccine output is going to accelerate quite dramatically. We should actually have a glut of vaccines um, by uh, the middle of the year, which is good news for the low and middle income economies that are less well vaccinated than than rich countries. And that should help them, uh, you know, get more vaccines into arms and um, and help them protect their economies and their people against the uh, against the virus more effectively. We also may hear about some new vaccines next year. Um, so there are some in development that um, can be administered either as skin patches or through inhalation. And that would certainly make it much easier to get vaccines into um, you know, the, the uh, difficult corners of the developing world without cold chains and fridges and all that sort of thing. So we may start to um, you know, hear more about that during 2022. But what's probably most exciting in the fight against the virus is the emergence of these antiviral treatments from Merck and Pfizer. And these are pills that can be given to people who test positive and uh, whether or not they're showing symptoms and you take them for a few for a few days, um, a bit like a course of antibiotics, and um, they make you dramatically less likely to become seriously ill or die. 90% less likely in the case of the Pfizer pill. They work in slightly different ways, but what's very good about them is that they both disrupt the replication of RNA within cells, which is what virus viruses are made of RNA. So when they reproduce themselves, they hijack the cellular machinery to pump out more copies of themselves. And these pills disrupt that process. And so the good news is that because they disrupt that process, rather than being targeted at a particular variant or particular virus, they will still work against Omicron. Um, so it's uh, we hope it will be a bump in the road. We don't yet know uh, the extent to which Omicron is more transmissible than previous variants like Delta and the extent to which it is more dangerous and more deadly. Uh, the, the rosy outcome, the good news, the best scenario would be that it's more transmissible and therefore dis displaces Delta, um, but is much milder. Um, but that may be wishful thinking again. Um, the nightmare scenario is that it's both more transmissible and more dangerous, particularly to the unvaccinated, um, but is also able to evade the protection provided by vaccines and previous infections. So we really don't know which of those it's going to be, and uh, we should get more data in the in the coming weeks. But you'll have noticed, you know, the markets shoot up when there's a bit of good news, and they shoot down again when there's a bit of bad news. So we really do have to wait for the scientists to do their work and give us the answers. But this then weighs very much on the outlook for the economy next year. Um, if you look at this chart, you can see what's been happening in the US with um, uh, with this the, the shift of spending away from services and towards goods. When you can't go on holiday, you can't go to a restaurant, uh, you can't go out to the cinema, you shift your spending from services like that to goods and you buy a bigger TV or, or whatever. And so we've seen this and um, the rapid rebound and the uh, the stimulus money that's been available has meant that the good supply chains are now extremely overstretched, which is why we've been having shortages. Uh, and we've also seen prices going up and we've got um, this, these worries about inflation. Um, so essentially, this is a consequence of the economy bouncing back, but bouncing back in an unbalanced way where there's too much emphasis on goods spending rather than services spending. Now, until very recently, the consensus view among economists and central bankers was this that this was temporary um, and that, you know, the supply chain kinks would work themselves out, that economies would gradually reopen and that spending would shift back towards services. And that would also help and that therefore the interest rate rise that we've seen was transitory. Um, but as you'll be aware, you know, Jerome Powell has just said that he thinks we should stop using the word transitory. And people are now worried that inflation is going to stay higher for longer. And one of the big reasons for this is Omicron. So Omicron makes three of the threats to the world economy in 2022 
uh, more dangerous. So the first one is is the pandemic itself. Um, you know, the expectation that uh, things were we'd we'd got past the worst and that we wouldn't have sort of widespread shutdowns and so on. Um, that has been uh, thrown into jeopardy by Omicron. And uh, so we could see, you know, if we do see widespread uh, shutdowns, particularly in China, where you know the government's approach to outbreaks is to do lockdowns in cities and lockdowns of entire firms, when even they have a, a small number of cases, they have a a, a suppression strategy. Um, so we could see, see further disruption. That could then lead to more of the second danger, which is inflation. So Omicron could push inflation up. I mean, it, it's also possible that it could actually um, help reduce inflation by reducing uh, reducing demand for some things. But um, but it, it seems more likely that it's actually going to make things worse with it, with inflation, because if, uh, if there are disruptions to economies and people do have to go back to staying at home, that again, this return to spending on services is not going to happen. Instead, we're going to have spending on goods, the price of goods is going to go up, supply chains are, continue, are going to continue to be disrupted, um, and so on. And then the third risk that Omicron poses is to the Chinese economy itself. Uh, the Chinese economy is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, looking a little bit green about the gills because of the uh, concerns about the property sector. And um, China's suppression strategy means that it's you know, not in a position to, uh, it's, it's not choosing to live with the, the virus like many other countries are. Its, va its vaccines don't work as well as the vaccines we have in the West. And so it has stuck with this idea that, um, that you know, drastic shutdowns are the best way to deal with flare-ups of the virus. And um, that makes it particularly vulnerable to Delta, but it makes it even more vulnerable to Omicron. And so you know, if, if big chunks of the Chinese economy shut down, um, that could cause problems for the rest of the world, given that we rely on China to manufacture so many goods. So I think once again, uh, just how spreadable and just how dangerous Omicron is, which should become apparent uh, in, in the coming weeks, uh, will, will be a big factor in how economies develop uh, next year. But uh, the expectation is that we are going to see slower growth and higher inflation than people were thinking, you know, really just a couple of months ago. Um, and that does mean that, uh, you know, central banks are going to find themselves in a in quite a tight spot. Um, and uh, we're already hearing, you know, calls for the for the Fed to, to change its approach to, to stimulus and to signal exactly how many times it's going to raise interest rates and so on. It's clear that the days when the, the Fed just saying, well, we're serious about fighting inflation was enough to make inflation stop going up uh, have passed and they're going to have to do something a bit more muscular. Let's move on to the future of work. Um, here, interestingly, there is a consensus that we are going to see more hybrid working in the future for office workers. Now, we should remind ourselves that not everybody can work from home. Uh, only about 50% of the population, even in rich countries, are able to work from home some of the time. But there is a general consensus that those who can are going to do more of it in the future. That's about where the agreement ends, though. Exactly how much more and how it's going to work, um, there's an awful lot of scope for disagreement over the details. And it turns out that um, there's an interesting disparity between what bosses want and what workers want. Bosses are generally much keener on people going back to the office. They like offices. They have nicer offices than everybody else. Workers um, in polls are less keen and want to spend fewer days back in the office and more days at home. And then there's also a disparity between what workers say they want and what they actually do when you give them a choice, which is that they stay at home even more in many cases. Um, and then this is sort of assuming that all workers have the same priorities, but it's very clear that they don't. Again, this is a survey from the US, but it shows you that, um, that women and minorities are less keen on returns to the office. Uh, women with children and to a lesser extent men with children uh, value the flexibility of working from home because it's easier to juggle 
work and childcare when you've got flexible working arrangements. And members of ethnic minorities may return, sorry, may prefer working from home because they find office environments are unwelcoming or discriminatory. Uh, there's an extraordinary survey from Slack that found that 3% of black knowledge workers in America wanted to return to the office full time versus 21% of white knowledge workers. So there's a risk here of unfairness if some groups of workers go back to the office more than others and are then more visible to their superiors. And we know that means they're more likely to get promoted. And this could widen the gender pay gap. And it could also mean that companies go backwards on diversity and inclusion. And this would be the opposite of the sort of optimistic things that people predicted when the great working from home experiment began in 2020. Back then, there was a lot of optimism that it could lead to fairer and more equal workplaces. People talked about a zoomocracy where we're all equal in our little tiles in a video call and that the pandemic by allowing you to hire people who don't necessarily just work in the city where you are, but you could hire people in other parts of the country or in other parts of the world was a way to broaden the talent pool, address discrimination, inequality and so forth. But it's now clear that the hybrid workplace of the future will be unfair unless it's designed not to be. So this is going to take a lot of time to, to work out, um, a lot of discussion and dialogue. And we're going to have to deal with you know, lots of little details like updating employment law, like surveillance. So some companies have been surveilling their remote workers to make sure they're actually working, doing things like measuring how much they're moving their mice. Is that appropriate? How much of that is allowed? health and safety rules, tax rules. What about all those bankers who used to you know, work in Manhattan, but they're now working from home in neighboring states around New York. And you know, those states are starting to say, well, perhaps we should have the tax revenues. Thank you very much. Um, so there's an awful lot of questions and arguments here. And I think it will take a few years to work this out, but the process will really begin in earnest in 2022. OK, let's move on to the tech lash. This is a term actually coined by The Economist in our annual, in fact, in the world in a few years ago. Um, the backlash against big tech comes from consumers and it also comes from regulators. But despite lawsuits and fines and hauling up bosses in front of you know, government panels, those tech giants just keep marching on. They keep getting bigger. Their market caps go up. Uh, their profits go up and uh, it doesn't seem to really scratch them at all. Um, what's interesting is that in 2021, the discussion about the tech lash has completely changed because the Chinese government launched a brutal crackdown against its tech, tech industry. So we saw IPOs being halted, video games for children banned during the week, celebrities booted off social media, the online tutoring sector was made entirely non-profit. And all of this has wiped, as you can see from this chart, about one and a half trillion dollars off the market cap of Chinese tech firms. It's all been done under the cover of the pandemic, but it was clearly something that um, the Chinese government was planning to do. And uh, what seems to be happening here is that Xi Jinping wants to remind people who's boss. There were some uh, tech bosses who he felt were getting a bit too big for their boots, like Jack Ma. Um, but he also wants to kind of change the direction of the uh, of the US, uh, sorry, of the Chinese tech industry. So um, Chinese uh, officials have always said how strange it, they think it is that uh, in the West, the sort of the greatest minds, the sharpest, the cleverest people, they end up either working on sort of algorithm, algorithms that place advertisements for, for Google or Facebook, or they end up going to work for investment banks who invent new, you know, exotic derivatives that then blow up our economies. And they've, they, you know, I've, I, there was a hilarious interview that Bloomberg did with one of the uh, managers of one of the big Chinese sovereign wealth funds saying this, and, um, uh, you know, it, you, it, 
it is quite a good point. So what Xi Jinping is saying is, why have we got our best tech companies working on things like new kinds of online shopping, um, when I would much rather thank you that they worked on semiconductors, artificial intelligence, robots, quantum computing, and the sorts of things that will give China a military and sort of geopolitical advantage. So this is, I think, what's really happening here. Will it work? We are not persuaded that it will. If you again look at the right-hand chart this time, you can see that um, the amount of money flowing into Chinese startups is actually going down. And we think that trying to boss them around like this is more likely to stifle economic dynamism and hamper innovation and entrepreneurism. We've seen a, a spate of Chinese tech bosses you know, resigning or retiring because they really just don't want to be involved in a market where they are operating at the whim of the government and it seems to change its mind quite often. Meanwhile, back in America, politicians would love to admit it, but they, they would never admit it, but they would love to be able to clobber their tech giants in the way that China has recently. Um, and obviously, you can't do that in a democracy. But um, Joe Biden has recently put in place several people who are quite sceptical um, about uh, about big tech at various regulatory agencies. And so I think we're likely to hear a lot more in the coming months about new rules on privacy, consumer data, online protection of children. I think we're going to be hearing a lot about that. Tweaks to um, Section 230 on content moderation and so forth. And we've seen that even the threat of action uh, by American regulators can prompt change. So, for example, Apple has just made it easier to repair its devices. Um, so, you know, I think we may see rather than sort of big, bold breakups and lawsuits, I think we may see uh, the, the US tech giants being sort of herded in a, in a slightly more consumer friendly direction with these sorts of regulations. But at the end of the day, what keeps these big tech bosses awake at night is not what regulators do. It's what their rivals are doing because these tech companies are all moving on to each other's patch. But it's also big shifts in technology. You know, are we all going to start going to work in the metaverse or something like that? And we've seen in the past that, you know, it's when big tech companies miss these shifts that that's what actually cuts them down to size. Uh, that's what, you know, humbles them. It tends not to be regulators. It tends to be changes in the tech landscape more broadly. Um, Another area where there's been lots of innovation, lots of discussion, and there's a big fight brewing on the regulation is crypto. Um, the fact that China has banned Bitcoin uh, mining, that other companies are talking, other countries are talking about regulation of various kinds, and some countries are, are, are trying to be more welcoming and say, "Come here and and uh, you know do do uh, great things with crypto," like Singapore is. Um, this tells you that this is a, a technology that is being taken increasingly seriously. We've seen a lot more interest in the past few months in distributed finance. Um, we're also hearing from central banks about how they want to respond, which is by issuing their own digital currencies. So what I think we're seeing here is three competing visions emerging for the digital future of finance. We've got the tech firms on the one hand, um, so companies like Facebook, which wants to have its own currency, but also companies like Stripe and Square, which has just renamed itself to Block. Um, what, the, what the tech companies have done is they've seen what's happened in Asia, where you have these, these big sort of super apps that allow you to not just message your friends, go shopping, order food, hail a ride, but also actually act as your, your bank account and your payment system as well. And that gives these tech companies even more data uh, to chew on, to train their AIs and to, um, and to target advertisements and, and things like that. Um, so that's the sort of tech industry vision of the future of finance, which is that in the same way that we trust them to do so many other things in our lives, we should be trusting them with our money too. 
And then, of course, you've got the distributed finance crypto blockchain crowd, and they say no, centralizing all of that activity, either in traditional banks or in tech firms, is bad. And we should have a distributed system. We should start again, and we should have this system that sort of nobody owns and is uh, is much more, uh, you know, sort of equitable in, the, in that regard and doesn't grant any particular institution or CEO um, power over, over what's happening. And indeed, regulators are also left out of this picture. And then we have the central banks who are saying, well, hang on a minute, if someone's going to issue digital currencies around here, shouldn't it be us? Um, and we've seen some very interesting things. You know, China's been experimenting with a central bank digital currency. Uh, Brazil set up this digital payment system uh, a year ago, which is now used by most of the population. Nothing to do with crypto and, and central bank digital currencies are not cryptocurrencies, don't use blockchain. Um, so we're seeing some kind of innovative moves from central banks as well. The fight between all three of these camps is going to intensify next year. And of course, it's going to be down to regulators to decide what mixture of these different approaches we end up with and what the best way is to preserve the potential of these new digital forms of money and digital financial services while avoiding the risks. And there's a very active debate about, you know, how to regulate crypto in particular and the crypto crowd, you know, they hate the SEC. They do not want to be regulated by the SEC at all. Uh, and they would like a new regulator. They say that, you know, this is, this is something that needs it's a completely new approach. Um, but this is a movie we've seen before. We've seen many times with new technologies that, you know, the, uh, the, the fiercest backers of those new technologies say this is going to change everything. It's going to blow up everything. It's going to change the world. And there's usually a kernel of truth in this. Um, but uh, usually what happens is that there's a compromise between the traditional old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. And we've seen this, you know, in lots of lots of industries. Probably the best example is Napster. When that showed up 20 years ago, it was this radical idea that you could just type the name of a song into a program on your computer and be playing it a few seconds later. People loved it, but it was completely illegal. And, and the uh, the musicians didn't get paid and it took a few years to develop a version of that service that was legal and meant that people got paid and that's what spotify or apple music or that sort of thing is so you know what does that compromise look like in financial services i don't know but um that's the kind of direction i think we're heading in okay let's talk about climate we've seen more extreme weather this year of various kinds extraordinary heat waves uh, in many parts of the world including uh, the pacific northwest and um we've also seen the paris uh, climate targets, you know, we haven't seen much progress made towards those at the COP26 conference in Glasgow. And just where we're supposed to be cutting emissions, in fact, many parts of the world, we've been turning coal-fired power stations back on again. And this is because we've got this energy crunch uh, because of these supply chain crunches, you know, demand for power from Chinese factories has shot up. Uh, the price of uh, fossil fuels has gone up as a, as a result. In Britain, we're very dependent on natural gas. So we've, um, you know, the price of which has tripled or quadrupled. So we've been uh, going back to coal in some cases. And um, we don't know how long this energy crunch is going to last. And it could, you know, be, be short, uh, short lived. But, you know, that's what people were saying about inflation. And it's a very, you know, it's a very coupled uh, situation. Uh, the other thing is that even if it does prove short lived, it just over the winter, um, there's no reason why we couldn't see more crunches like this in the near future, because the real problem here is that we aren't investing enough in new sustainable energy infrastructure. So uh, in order to get to net zero by the middle of the century, we need to be spending globally about $5 trillion a year. And we're only spending about half that much. Um, so that means that, you know, when you do have an energy crunch, well, you can't just suddenly turn on more solar panels and more wind turbines because you just don't have them there. So you'd end up falling back on on fossil fuels. So although the energy crunch is at odds with tackling climate change, the answer to both of them is, in fact, the same thing, which is to boost investment 
in these new energy technologies and build smarter and more resilient grids and invest more in storage and all this sort of thing. Now, that's all great. But what we also need to figure out with, with regard to climate is how Western nations can cooperate with China on climate, even as geopolitical tensions are rising. Now, obviously, we do manage to cooperate in some other areas like making iPhones. So maybe there's a way to do it in climate. And funnily enough, in our pages in the world in, in the world ahead 2022, um, we have a suggestion from Ma Jun, and he is a leading Chinese environmentalist. He runs an NGO and he says the obvious place for the West and China to cooperate is exactly as with the iPhones to cooperate at the point of the factories in China that produce Western goods. And what his NGO has done is map the emissions of about 10 million Chinese companies, including the factories that are used by Western companies to make things like iPhones. And the idea is that by using that database, Western companies can choose the Chinese producers that have the lowest carbon footprints. And this will push other factories towards cutting their carbon footprints. Uh, so I think this is really smart because it uses the fact that we are very happy to cooperate with China when it comes to economic matters uh, like manufacturing, um, even if we disagree on many things politically. Uh, so it'd be great to see uh, more progress in that area. Evidence that climate can trump politics comes from another part of the world too, the Middle East. In, in our pages, we also have a guest piece from the Israeli, Palestinian and Jordanian leaders of an NGO called EcoPeace Middle East. And it proposes doing regional climate deals. Um, and in fact, a few days after we went to press, in fact, a few days after we came out, a deal of exactly this nature was done between Israel and Jordan. And this involves Jordan using funding from the UAE and backing from the US is going to build a big solar farm. Um, it's got lots of desert, lots of space where it can do that. It's then going to send some of the electricity to Israel and uh, Israel is going to use some of that electricity to desalinate water, which Jordan is very short of, and, and send it back again. So it's essentially trading solar power for desalinated water. Um, so I think that's a very hopeful sign. Maybe it is possible to overcome political divisions and work together to address climate change. So let's hope we see more of that in 2022. Now on to travel. And you can see from this chart that travel was rebounding. Um, it wasn't I mean, domestic travel is much closer to its pre-pandemic level. International travel is taking a lot longer. Obviously, Omicron has rather complicated the picture there again. And we've had lots of uh, countries closing their borders and so on. However, I think two things remain um, true here. One is that we've seen a surprising amount of innovation uh, in the past year or so uh, for to allow people to continue to travel. So you don't have to have a sort of strictly um, it's it's everything's closed or everything's open. Uh, you can have more fine grained approaches to allowing people to travel. And I think um, you know one of the countries that's pioneered this is Thailand, which has come up with what it calls a sandbox model. And this is where, because Thailand depends on tourism for about 20% of its GDP, it takes part of the country, in particular, the resort island of Phuket, and it allows people who are vaccinated and have tested negative into Phuket um, for, for two weeks, and then they can go home again. But if they want to travel onto the mainland and to other sites in, in Thailand, they can then do so. So, so Phuket is used as a sort of holding area, very nice holding area, I'm sure. Um, and the locals there, um, in, in particular, those who work in the hospitality industry are all fully vaccinated as well. Um, so this is a really clever way of allowing people into some parts of the country and having higher confidence that you're going to be able to uh, you know, basically give them a, a safe holiday and also have the economic benefits of, of them being tourists. And so this sandbox model is starting to spread to other countries, in particular in Asia. And I think we can expect to see more of that and more sort of, of these kinds of innovations in 2022. 
the second big question is what's going to happen to business travel um, we saw after 9-11 and after the global financial crisis that business travel did not bounce back to its previous level. Overall travel grew, but only because tourist travel um, ended up growing more. And uh, I think it's even less likely that business travel re will rebound to its previous level this time because business people have got used to using video conferencing. The technology is a lot better and they've realized that there are big cost savings to be had. Um, particularly for internal meetings. I mean, if you're going to go and schmooze clients, then you know maybe you do want to get on that plane. Uh, but this has led some people to say that a third or possibly as much as a half of all business travel could be gone forever, which is, I think, plausible. That would be good for the planet, but it would be bad news for tourists because um, their tickets and their hotels are often subsidized by higher spending business travelers. Business class on planes is about 20% of the, of the volume, but it's about 75% of the profits for a typical incumbent carrier. Okay, somewhere we've seen a lot more travel. One destination that has uh, been much more popular in 2021 is space. We've seen three rival space tourism companies send people to space this year in unprecedented numbers, uh, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and SpaceX. And in 2022, they're all planning to send more people into space. It may be the first year where more people go to space as paying passengers than as government employees. Um, and as well as this rivalry between private space firms, we're also going to see more of the sort of traditional rivalry in space between big global powers. Um, of course, America is talking about going back to the moon. That's not going to happen next year. But China is going to finish its space station next year, which it thinks is sort of one of the signs that it's arrived as a superpower. That's going to be permanently occupied. And India is going to have another go at sending a robotic probe to the moon. The first one it sent a couple of years ago didn't work, so it's going to have another go. Meanwhile, there's a third form of rivalry in space, which is um, filmmakers and who can make the first film shot partially in, in, in orbit. And um, two Russians, an actress and a cameraman, went to space in October, went to the space station to film some scenes for a Russian film that's due to come out next year. Tom Cruise was supposed to be doing something similar in conjunction with SpaceX, but it's not clear what's happened to that project. Um, so it seems very likely that as with, the, um, with Sputnik in 1957, uh, when it comes to this new space race to make a film in space, the Russians are going to get there first again, uh, and they're going to get off the ground before before the Americans do. Um, combining these two ideas of, of Hollywood and space, we're also going to see this extraordinary real mission that looks like a Hollywood movie, which is that NASA is going to crash a space probe into an asteroid. This is going to happen in um, probably in October next year. Uh, and the idea is to see how much crashing that space probe into the asteroid changes its trajectory. And this is a practice in case we have to do this in future, if an asteroid is on collision course with the Earth and we need to knock it off target. Um, but all of these spectacular things could very easily be upstaged by this spaceship here. This is uh, SpaceX's new rocket Starship, um, and it's going to make its first orbital flight in January or February. It's a, an amazingly powerful, amazingly big rocket. And if it can be made to work, and the first, you know, the, the test flights, some of them have resulted in spectacular explosions. There'll probably be a few more of those as well next year. But if it can be made to work, then it would, you know, once again, transform the economics of putting people and things into space. So prepare for liftoff there. Finally, sport. The Winter Olympics in Beijing and the World Cup in Qatar are going to be reminders, I think, of how much sport can unite the world and bring people together, but also how these big political events can become political footballs. And we're going to see, I think, protests and boycotts directed at the host countries in both cases. Uh, the US has just said it's not going to send any spectators, any diplomats to observe. Uh, China has already said it's not going to allow any foreigners to, 
um, to attend as spectators at the Winter Olympics um, already. But we're going to see sort of boycotts, diplomatic boycotts of this nature uh, from other countries too. Of course, the teams themselves are going to be going. We're not going to see a sort of 1980s style boycott on that level, uh, although some people have suggested that. But I think instead what we're going to see is we may see protests by medal winners from the podium in some cases against uh, against China and its human rights record. And we're already seeing uh, campaigns against the big sponsors of the Winter Olympics uh, on social media um, saying, you know, do you really want to be associated uh, with these games given, you know, what the host country is um, has been up to in Xinjiang and so forth. Similarly, with the football, um, football teams from the Netherlands, Germany and Norway have protested against the choice of Qatar as a host country because of its repressive laws, its poor treatment of migrant workers. And it's those migrant workers who've built the stadiums where these uh, football games are going to be taking place in November, of course, because um, you can't possibly go outdoors and play football or do anything else in the summer in Qatar. So the, the entire tournament is happening later than usual. So I think once again, we're going to see pressure on the sponsors there in particular. I don't think we're going to see any teams pulling out. Okay, those are my themes and predictions for 2022. I hope you found that helpful. I wish you the best of luck in navigating the year ahead. And now let's go to Q&A. Thank you for listening. Thanks, Tom. That was wonderful. So I'm going to put you on the spot here about one of the uh, forecasts for this year. And I don't think Larry Sumners would agree with Ryan Avent talking about inflation. Let me quote exactly. Indeed, in 2022, interest rates will rise across much of the world. Inflation is back, but not for long. Well, funnily enough, I was speaking to Larry Summers um, just about an hour ago because I was interviewing him for a podcast. Um, yes, things have changed. So Ryan, Ryan was um, uh, Ryan is one of our uh, main economics commentators, and he has he's written the article about inflation and the outlook for inflation that's in the annual. Uh, I have to say that is one of the articles that you know, along with the um, emer emergence of Omicron, has been overtaken uh, by events to some extent. I think people are, and the two are related. I mean, the, one of the reasons people are so worried about uh, more worried about inflation is that we have seen these spiking inflation numbers in many places, but Omicron also means uh, that we're likely to see inflation higher for longer, I think. So um, so yes, I think uh, Larry Summers feels very vindicated that the world is coming round to his his way of, uh, uh, of seeing things. Um, he also, funnily enough, it turns out, published a paper um, uh, quite recently that, that that began by saying that Delta was not the, that we were, he said that we are not even, you know, halfway through the pandemic and that Delta was not going to be uh, the last variant. So that was obviously written before Omicron emerged. And once again, he's been proved right. The broader point he was making there is that we're likely to see more pandemics in the future, uh, that in some senses, it's surprising we haven't had something like uh, COVID previously, given how interconnected the world has become and how quickly things can spread around and how you have, you know, very, very dense urban populations in much of the world. It's surprising we haven't seen this before. And it would be very surprising if we didn't see this again, you know, in less than a century uh, of, a, you know, the gap from the last big global pandemic being being a century. Um, so he's saying we need to be more prepared, not just for inflation in the short term, uh, but we also need to be more prepared for future pandemics in the long term. One of the charts that I found so interesting was this one. Do you see it there? Yeah. Normalcy exit. And I, I suspect you're going to continue to um, um, update this. Take our viewers through it. Yeah. So this was an attempt to try to, to try and sort of measure how back to normal things were in a single number. Uh, of course, you can't do it in a single number. So we ended up dividing things into um, uh, you know, different categories like transport into, you know, attendance, box office attendance and uh, 
you know, footfall at, 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 uh, at shops, et cetera, et cetera. So we combine different activities in different categories, and then we rank all the countries, we measure those things in all the countries, and then we add them up to have an overall kind of return to normality index. And one of the things you can then do is you can look at how the, the, uh, that index compares with the, uh, the level of vaccination and the rate of vaccination in countries. And you can say, well, if vaccination accelerated, you know, how much would that, how much would we expect that to push countries back to uh, their pre-pandemic normal? Um, and what's striking is that you can see that there are actually some things that aren't snapping back. Um, so, you know, people do seem to prefer watching films at home. We've seen some big movies released, you know, on streaming platforms or simultaneously released on streaming platforms. It's actually, you know, if you've got a nice cinema set up at home, why would you want to go to the cinema and, you know, catch something nasty? You've probably got a nice big sound system. You know, you've got your own, you've got as much popcorn as you can fit in your cupboard. So, you know, we don't think that's going to snap back um, all the way. Similarly, working from home is something that a lot of people have got used to and, and don't want to, um, you know, they're not going to want to go back to the office completely. Uh, so I think that is something that is here to stay. But those are the sorts of details that you can uh, you can tease out of this. And clearly, you can also see that there's quite a wide variation um, around the world in the extent to which different countries have gone back to normal. Yeah, it's particularly interesting to look at China, where you see these yeah. spurts and, and then... Well, I mean, the, the suppression strategy that China has pursued is, you know, it's extremely... I mean, it's something that an autocratic government can do. I mean, back, back in the early days of the pandemic, before it had spread to other countries, you know, if you went shopping and you were scanned as you went into a supermarket and you had a temperature, they would haul you off right then and stick you in a gymnasium and um, and you know you would you would have to stay there and you know for two weeks basically. Um, this is the sort of thing that you know nobody would stand for in a in a democracy. But um, China has the uh, the option to suppress the virus in ways that um, other countries don't, shall we say? So I want to jump to this next screen, and there's so many so much on it. But let's talk about the outcome of the 2022 uh, midterms. Um, well, I think, you know, this is a very uh, long-standing pattern in US politics that the incumbent party does badly. Um, we actually have a more detailed analysis of the numbers here in um, in our in the US section of this. But um, but however you cut it, uh, we do expect the um, the Democrats to lose control of the House. And obviously, they don't really have a majority in the Senate. It's 50 50. Um, so, you know, we think that uh, this means that uh, this is 2022 is is going to be the last year that uh, that Joe Biden can really get much done. He's going to have to focus on foreign policy and uh, executive orders in the second half of his presidency. But um, but, you know, the the scope for getting serious legislation through. I suppose there are a couple of areas where it's possible uh, you might have bipartisanship. Uh, I mean, there are very few these days, but obviously China is one. But I think the really um, likely one is going to be tech regulation. And Republicans and Democrats hate the tech firms for completely different reasons, uh, and they probably can't both be right at the same time. It's a it's a bit like um, uh, you know hating the EU. The left thinks the EU is a neoliberal conspiracy in Britain, and the right the right thinks that the EU is a is a, a you know a socialist conspiracy and both of these things cannot be true at the same time but uh but for the you know the outcome is that lots of well, people I'm, hate I'm the glad eu you brought up the eu because how did 2021 and the forecast for 2022 affect brexit in the uk and well brexit has uh, not gone the way that the advocates of brexit said it would shall we say um it has made it much more difficult for 
Britain to trade with basically everybody, but we do most of our trade with the EU. Um, so we've seen you know, a massive drop in imports and exports as we trade with the EU. Um, and it's made it much more difficult for us to respond to the pandemic and to the, uh, the problems that we see now with rising energy prices and with rising inflation. And this is because Britain is particularly, uh, you know, we have a labor shortage in many industries like many other countries do, but we have cut off one of our sources of labor. So previously before Brexit, you know, a lot of people that you saw in hospitality were were migrant workers from the EU. You can't do that anymore. So we've got more of that. That problem is worse because of Brexit. And then similarly, the um, the uh, energy crunch and inflation is worse for us, not because of Brexit, but because we're particularly reliant on uh, imports of natural gas. So Britain is um, is sort of it's it's harder for us to respond to the energy crunch um, because we're so so gas dependent um, and then we are you know actually quite an import dependent economy we're quite an open economy so when prices rise we do feel it we're not self-sufficient in a lot of things um, so all of this means that you know Britain is one of the countries that is our economic team thinks is in particular danger of falling into a sort of 70s style um, wage price spiral uh, sort of 70s style stagflation and um, and Brexit you know doesn't help at all. It actually makes it more difficult to deal with the problems that we see as a result of inflation and the pandemic. So, Tom, I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you have a hard stop in about six minutes with your publisher, and we know you got to be there. So I'm going to ask you to limit yourself to 30 seconds for each one of these good questions from our audience. I bet you can do it. Let's hear from her. Will there be a worldwide pact to regulate, prevent the proliferation of artificial satellites driven by Elon Musk? Um, I think we need to, um, we have a problem with space debris. The problem with space debris is that the the means that you use to clean it up look like they are exactly the same as the means you would use to attack other people's satellites. So it's really tough. I think there is a growing concern that because Elon has the best rockets, he's putting up the most satellites and he's kind of setting the rules for everyone else. So yes, I would expect to see um, progress on sort of international agreements on on sort of space junk and um, and sort of growing concern about the number of satellites being put up. Miles Zitmore says, do you think that working remotely might accelerate the push to use AI to find ways to replace work, uh, re- replace workers permanently? So much more beyond Zoom. Um, in theory, I mean, the, the, a lot of people said that the the pandemic would accelerate automation. Uh, there's no evidence of it so far, and in fact, there's there still isn't any evidence that automation is leading is is you know taking jobs away from people. Um, this is something that people have claimed that automation would do for two hundred years now, and it's never happened. Um, so what automation does is it means that you you know you you can automate some parts of processes, and then the parts that are unautomatable, you need more people to do them. And we've seen this time and time again. You know, the weaving industry in America uh, employed more people at the end of the nineteenth century than it did at the beginning. Um, as a result of automation. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not persuaded that, uh, that you know, the machines are coming for our jobs, and I don't think that this, um, th- this changes that calculation. Ray Termini, both political parties seem to agree that Section 230, both U.S. political parties, Section 230 of the CDA needs to be revised. How do you see this playing out in 2022, if at all? Yeah, it's tricky because um, 
once you get down to it, both um, there is there are concerns from both uh, sides of the aisle about Section 230, but they are based on fundamentally different readings of what 230 says and what it means. Um, because if Section 230 wasn't there, then uh, you know all those Republicans who got booted off uh, Twitter and Facebook would have had to have been booted off much earlier. Uh, the only reason they weren't was that the platforms were not liable for the things that they said. Um, and so in that respect, um, so so I, I so how you actually there's a general agreement that something needs to change about 230, but um, but I think this is this could be tricky because the two parties want to go in opposite directions on that particular thing. I think when it comes to protecting children online, uh, you know, or d data privacy those sorts of things I think there is you know more likely to be um, an agreement that uh, that uh, the tech companies have got too much room for maneuver and that they need to you know th the rules need to be tightened but I think section 230 is difficult because uh, there's a fundamental disagreement about what it means in the first place do you think that and, and this is really drawing on two questions that are in front of me do you think that there'll be more cooperation between Western companies and China and Chinese companies in light of the desire to make progress on, on, on climate change, and how will the Communist Party react to that? Well, I hope there I hope there will be because I mean the Communist Party is committed to reducing emissions. It wants to peak its emissions by 2030, and it wants to get to carbon neutrality by I think 2060, which is not quite as soon as you know we might like. We're aiming for um, globally for by 2050. I mean the Communist Party has always put growth above. Uh, cutting emissions and and it says you know why should we uh, why should we not get as rich as you are um, and why should we sort of accept not getting as rich as we could um, and so you know that, that given the choice between those trade offs they're always going to they're always going to choose growth and and uh, and you know increasing prosperity and is is extraordinary it's more people lifted out of poverty in a shorter time uh, than has ever happened in human history so you you know you can see where they're coming from here um, that said um, that I think that does mean there is scope for cooperation of the kind that Ma Jun has has talked about and of course there are other ways of doing it too the EU is talking about carbon border adjustment mechanisms and, and this sort of thing um, and I think you know what I would like to hope is that this adds up to some sort of global um, we're not going to have a global carbon price but you know if we can have something that worked in the same way then that would give everybody the incentives to move towards lower carbon technologies because at the moment those incentives just aren't there. And staying on the subject of climate change we hear from Carol the Arctic and Greenland, Greenland are melting faster and faster. We're going to see any coordinated policy between Russia and the United States? Uh, well, I don't think you can do much about it. I mean, the, the, the policy is to cut emissions. I mean, there's nothing you can do locally. Of course, the one thing you could do is try um, solar geoengineering. So you could try pumping um, dust into the atmosphere. Those researchers at Harvard who want to try this, there's an experiment called SCOPEX. They want to try this with a whole two kilograms of chalk dust. And every time they propose doing this, they want to throw them out of a balloon in the stratosphere, measure the dispersion, basically simulate what Mount Pinatubo did in 1991. It yeah. reduced global temperatures by half a degree for four years. So we know this works, but it's hugely controversial because some people will look at it and say, this is great. It will buy us more time to cut emissions. And other people will say, this is great. We can go on flying and driving enormous SUVs and, and burning oil. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a, a technical uh, challenge, but it's a massively political thing. And so I think there's going to be a big fight about that in 2022. And before I turn it over to Liz, tell everybody why they need to go to Oklahoma if they're Bob Dylan fans. Because the Bob Dylan Museum is opening, one of many <laughs> new museums opening next year. So if you're a and Bob Dylan fan. I want to go fan. see the Broadway Museum in New York. Thanks again, yeah, Tom. Liz, Thank over you. to you.
Thank you. I knew this was going to be a fascinating discussion. I have to say this is going to be one of my favorite programs of the year going forward. I think it's a great tr tradition for us to keep up with. Thank you both so much. And that was enlightening and exciting and makes us all more excited in some ways, perhaps for next year. To catch up on all, all of our virtual programs, go to YouTube and you can find us at DFW World. And last, if you are not a member of us yet, please do become one. I'd love to meet you in person. And remember, it's the holiday season. They make excellent gifts. Thank you all again. Have a wonderful day. Happy holidays. Be safe. Be bright. Be merry. Have a great day.